From real and relevant to what to do in the event of a mountain bike accident, the last predators in Middlesex, and the all-important question of who is responsible for the pizza at your exhibition of learning. In this episode, librarian Jeannie Phillips talks service learning with author and educator Katie Farber. I'm Jeannie Phillips and welcome to the 21st Century Classroom. We're here to talk books for educators, by educators, and with educators. Today I'm here with Katie Farber and we'll be talking about the book Real and Relevant, a guide for service and project-based learning. Thanks for joining me, Katie. Will you tell me a little bit about who you are and what you do? Hi, I'm excited to be here. Yeah, um, so I'm Katie Farber and I was a sixth grade teacher uh, for the past 17 years or so. and. Um, three years ago, joined the Tarrant Institute for Innovative Education as a professional development coordinator, where I've um, had great opportunities to research and to write and to think um, and to collaborate about how to make school engaging. Great. I'm so glad you're here to talk about this book. I really enjoyed it. I wish I had read it last year before I helped a team of teachers co-plan a service learning unit. Um, so I just want to start with your definition of service learning. You lay it out really clearly in the book, and I wondered if you could just tell us uh, what you think service learning is. Absolutely. I really, um, really like the Kids Consortium definition of service learning, which has students discovering the um, assets first, I would add, but the needs of their own community and then developing a plan, well, doing research about those needs and then coming up with a plan, an action plan of how they can improve a condition and make a real difference in their communities, reflecting along the way and then sharing their process out at the end. Could you talk more about what you mean by asset planning? Yes. In fact, um, when I first started the service learning work many, many years ago, um, I used this resource and it guided me to discover the needs and problems in the community. Um, but then a couple of years ago now, I started to think about um, and learn about an assets-based approach. So how can we um, go into communities um, as students or as teachers or as anyone really um, without really first looking at and learning from the strengths in that community um, and diving in and getting to know people that live there and what makes the place they live special. And from then, only then, I feel can, can teachers and students really explore what are the needs and the problems. That just makes me think about how you're asking students and teachers to go into the community with the same lens we as educators use with students, that we're not fixing them, we're not saving them, that we're really seeing where their strengths are and helping them build uh, where, skills where they have challenges. Yes, um, I just went to Amley in Florida and um, took teachers through an asset mapping process. It was very um, short, but you could replicate it in the classroom um, in, a, in a much more deliberate and intentional fashion. And I, I'll put that up on the service learning toolkit on the Tarrant Institute site. Um, but it seemed to set us up nicely to brainstorm about the assets of the community, then brainstorm about the potential need, and then look at the UN global goals and try to prioritize those needs based on, on those goals. And then think of projects from there, because then you're grounding students in what is special and important in their communities and what they want to improve on. Not solve, but improve on. Do you have an example of a school that's done this kind of asset mapping that you could just briefly describe the process? 
Yes, um, thinking about Brooktown School, um, they have these amazing kingdom trails, the mountain bike trails, and they noticed that a lot of, then that, that's the asset, right? This amazing outdoor opportunity that they have um, for residents and people that travel to the site to go mountain biking, um, but people get injured out there. Um, and they noticed a need for people in, in the surrounding area um, to have wilderness first responder skills. Um, so they learned from a local professor um, that works in that field how, what they should know, what are the really important things to know if you come upon somebody that's injured on the trail and how you can better help them. And then they went out and taught the community about that. So they used the asset, they found the problem that was existing within, even within that, and then developed a plan to, to make things safer in their community for people. Wow, that's such authentic learning. It's such an authentic problem, such an authentic learning, and also a really authentic audience. I'm grateful for that. My son is a mountain biker and loves <laughs> the Kingdom Trail, so I'm grateful to them for that. So uh, we've talked about what service learning is. In your book, you also um, go through project-based learning, what it is, and you sort of go through this process that I really appreciate of sort of Venn diagramming the two, where they have overlaps and where they're distinctly different. Do you want to talk through that a little bit? Yes, I think as educators, we get really stuck on what box we're operating in. And um, I think when you think about personalized pedagogies, that it's really great and fine and encouraging, actually, to dance between two two, three, or four approaches, as long as some of the um, commonalities exist, such as are we um, creating something that is going to be beyond the audience of one for the teacher? Are we, are we doing something um, that, that kids feel like they have voice choice, creativity, and that matters? Um, so those are some of the commonalities between them. Um, Project-based learning has a little bit more of um, structure in terms of entry events and, and sort of the way that maybe things are labeled. Um, and service learning seems more um, process oriented in terms of coming at looking at what are you going to improve and what are you going to do about it. But that is certainly not um, meant to be siloing, right? Um, I think the real difference that I can see with project-based learning and service learning is that project-based learning can be a simulation. It can be, um, you know, this court case that you're acting out, or it can be a mock election. It can still have excitement, relevance, engagement, um, but that service learning is tied toward, um, toward action in the community, right? And, and, and that that action is not decided upon by the adults. That's community service, right? And that's another misunderstanding I see a lot, is that um, community service is usually detached from the curriculum, usually adult-decided. Um, the example I like to use to think about that is, telling kids they're going to pull tires out of the river. Um, and the kids don't even know that the tires in the river are a problem. They just go do the thing, it's important, um, they make a difference, but they're not seeing the connections for themselves and they're not coming up with the plan themselves either. So what I hear you saying is that part of the authenticity of service learning is that kids identify the problem and the solution. Yes. Yes, and that, and that you can um, teach specific proficiencies or standards or transferable skills through that process. So I have real genuine curiosity about this as I work with schools. And um, sometimes I hear teachers who want to do service learning describe community service. And they really want to use it to, um, let's say, meet some science standards or do something around sustainability. So they're like, well, what I really hope that the kids will do is plant a school garden. And I'll say, well, you can narrow the scope so it's science-focused for service learning. 
but telling them what they're going to accomplish at the end automatically makes it not service learning. Am I correct when I say that? I think so. I think that, that you can have a real guided process with helping them discover the problem for themselves. And that, I think, is where the work is, right? Especially if you're coming at it with, with something that you have a sense of what you'd like them to discover and an and approach you'd like them to take, um, your, your process could be guiding them toward that. So one project that I did um, with the sixth graders was about the Worcester Mountain watershed. And so that was pretty specific, right? I had um, pretty specific things I wanted them to learn about the ecosystem there. Um, so we started with that focus and then asked them to brainstorm every question they could possibly think of about that, about that ecosystem, right? So it's very wide and then group them um, based on all sorts of different science concepts that emerged and then they're all learning from each other. So they're learning, you know, whatever it is in terms of erosion in our particular ecosystem or they're learning about the riparian zone or they're learning about a particular mammal. So it's, it's um, also that co-learning experience where I can cover a lot more in terms of proficiencies or standards if the students are also teaching each other and pursuing something of their interest within a certain theme or subject area. And so if you narrow the subject area, if your driving question, say, focuses them on a specific subject area, it's really the solutions that are up to them then. Hmm. Yeah, it's where are you finding the... Um, the voice choice and creativity. So you often think about it as sometimes we have to apply specific constraints and then look for the places where we can get the creativity and the choice. And then that's up to us to find that balance. And it's gonna be different class to class, um, year to year, project to project. It's not like we can just do the same service learning project every year, right? Because the needs of the community are gonna be different. The students that are coming to us are going to have different needs and different ideas. And so it's really, um, even with the same theme, even if you did the same theme, I'm certain your projects would turn out differently if we're um, sort of tuning the choice and constraints and really thinking carefully about that. So the constraints might be, we're focusing on this watershed. Yes, exactly. What I love about that is often um, students come up with way better ideas for the solution or for the um, push to improve a place than we would as adults. They're way more imaginative in their thinking. Absolutely, I agree. Have, have you seen that in practice? I have. Just the ideas for projects that they come up with are so much um, wider in scope than I, I ever anticipate. And it's, it's really exciting to see. I mean, it, within one... Um, culminating event that we had at Rumney School, um, there was all sorts of different things. There was a play, you know, about the, the last predators um, in, in Middlesex, you know, a play featuring, you know, the food web that I would never have anticipated from students who I would never have anticipated would, would have done that. There was a field guide for the amphibians that was um, describing the marsh that was a resource that was just off the playground that nobody even knew. They just didn't even know that was a habitat. So there's just such a wide variety that emerge um, and that really do add, add assets and, you know, and make connections for students to where they live. That also seems to get to me, get past this idea of strategic compliance, where you're complying with this project I want you to complete, to the work we really need kids to do in order to be good citizens in this world, which is imaginative, creative problem solving. Right. And then the other thing I think that really is um, an interesting point between service learning and project-based learning is that 
in, in my view, they both should really be process-oriented and student-learning-oriented versus um, a pretty little project that we're excited to share at the end from the adult lens. And I think it, we can get really caught up in what we think it should look like um, and forget that it's the, really their learning journey along the way that matters more than anything. Absolutely. I love that. So I feel like we've already gotten into this, but a question I had written down that I want some more answer to that I want you to really think out loud about is why service learning? Why should schools invest the time in service learning? I think you do a nice job of answering it in your book. Could you give us a few highlights? Well, what I've been reading and thinking about lately is we know that students who are deeply engaged in meaningful work um, learn more, achieve more, come to school more often, graduate on time more often, um, are, have better um, social skills and better feelings of interconnections um, between their, their fellow, their peers and their teachers. So this, these are, this is really important work. Um, I think that we can fall into those sort of content covering traps, but really um, what are we asking students to do? To learn how to become engaged citizens that can help improve the communities where they live um, in the future and, and currently. And they're such an undervalued resource in terms of um, compassionate, knowledgeable, caring people who can really be co-creators of a strong community. And um, if we don't give them those opportunities, what are we, what are we saying? Are we saying that you're not ready, you're not ready to contribute. Um, and then we're just going to all of a sudden ask them to vote and ask them to become members um, when we deem that they're ready for that. So I, I just feel like um, if we're not preparing students for, for this kind of engagement, uh, that that can really have a detrimental effect on our society, right? So, and let's not forget about all of the skills that they're going to be learning along the way and the social capital that they that they learn. So, um, what I mean by that is, uh, we'll see students who um, maybe they they're rurally isolated. They don't know what career paths could possibly be in front of them, and then they go ahead and maybe they're part of um, there's an invasive species group that, in a school that I work in, and they end up coordinating with all these different community groups, and they see what adult pathways could look like for helping your community and having a job that pays your bills, and they didn't know that existed before. Then they met that person. That person they now have a relationship. They have the social capital, whereas if they were isolated and they didn't have that before, they had no concept of it. So we're giving students all sorts of future pathways, career pathways, skills that they can use um, beyond school and showing them that they matter in that landscape. It seems to me like it's a really rich opportunity for um, the three pillars of Act 77, right? It's a really flexible learning environment where kids have lots of voice and choice, and it may be outside of their regular school setting. Um, it's uh, proficiency-based, right? You have to use transferable skills in order to do um, service learning well. And in order to do service learning well, you have to you have to be proficient at those skills, right? You have to be able to collaborate well or communicate well. You have to be able to problem solve and to demonstrate that, to collect evidence of it in order to um, do the service that you want to do. And um, and it feels really personalized, like kids get to choose um, their path 
It feels like the perfect tool for this moment. You know, and I think it is, like, just the basic skills of how to use the phone, how to make a contact, how to write a professional letter. These are things that kids have to practice and know how to do. And we have the responsibility within the service learning or project-based learning context to do the direct teaching and support to get them there. You know, we, um, as teachers, can make the, you know, the, the think of the idea that, oh, they're working on their projects, they're independent, but really it's our time to get personal and close in with what does a student need and how can we help them get there within this uh, project context. It also feel, it feels like it um, pushes that lever that I've found to be really useful in motivating students, which is authenticity or relevance, right? It's something that matters to them in their community. It's something that feels like they're doing really authentic work. This is not worksheet work. No. In fact, one of the things I think that illustrates that really well um, is I had a student who um, was a sixth grader, really didn't like coming to school and didn't really find um, success or meaning in sort of the regular academic context. But when he was partnered with a second grade student out at recess, helping that student play safely and helping all of the primary kids be safe on the playground, um, that those relationships blossomed. And then when he would walk by them in the hallway, they would high five him, they would hug him. And so he started to come to school more. He wanted, especially on the days when he was doing that work. So it was such a clear example to me of this matters. He feels like he belongs here. I mean, I, I would like to see a world in where every student feels like the school won't function properly if they are not there. So you're bringing me back to my last two podcasts. The first podcast we did was um, on the culture code. We talked about it with Bill Rich. And an important theme of that book is belonging. And what you're saying is that service learning really bring, builds belonging for students, that they feel necessary to their communities, their school community or their broader community. That's right, that they feel critically important and that they're learning with and from each other, and I think that uh, was a really important finding um, and learning for me was that we can um, reinforce existing stereotypes if we think, oh, we're doing this service for you. It's not doing the service for you. It is we are learning together. We are with in improving our communities. And in fact, if it's done in that reciprocal way, um, then service learning has the power to disrupt stereotypes and biases. And the research supports this. So you have fourth graders that go out um, and have pre-existing ideas of what elderly people are like, and then you have them do so service learning experience with those same folks, elderly people, and they disrupt the biases that they had about them beforehand. The same goes for pre-service teachers working in um, high poverty schools. So it's really powerful in terms of a tool to disrupt what you notice as maybe a privilege or a bias or a stereotype. It seems to me it's also an opportunity to disrupt adults' views of what kids are like. So this brings me to the other podcast, that um, my second podcast with Jory Hurst, where we talked about piecing me together. And in that book, Jade is the main character. And what she wants more than anything is to go on this community service trip to South America to use her Spanish to have an impact, to be able to give. And what she gets instead is a mentor. And she feels like, wait, how come I only get to get? How come I'm not seen as somebody who can give? And I feel like you're touching on that theme too, that it's empowering to know that we have something to offer, that we know we have something to give to our communities. 
Absolutely, and and what an undervalued resource, right? Um, when it, it also really does change the way the adults think about the kids, because. Um, here you have community partners that are coming in and, and their biases about teenagers, right? They come in with certain ideas that they have and those are disrupted by what are the kids able to do and bring to the table. So you really have all sorts of reciprocal benefits for all the, the community that get to engage with these kids and then for the kids that get to see their communities in a new light and themselves as a change agent within it. Could you talk a little bit more about community partners? I've heard you before in our Tarrant Institute meetings talk about um, community asset mapping. Could you uh, maybe guide schools through how they might discover the community partners that are could be their allies in this work? One thing that was really important for me as a new teacher in a school was to figure out who my community gurus were. Who were the people that have that social, that knowledge of what, what exists in the community and who are the people that know the people that can connect me to that. And that was really important for me to discover um, who those folks were. And um, that was through a whole bunch of uh, you know, parent connections and connections to the administrative assistant and connections with the custodian. But really, what, who are your people that know, um, know what's happening in the community and they know what experts you can reach out to? And so we would survey the parents, we would survey community members, um, we would ask all sorts of questions about, you know, um, what are the areas that you're interested in, what are the areas you could possibly come into the school and talk to kids about, would you be interested in having them onto your site or where your organization is located or would you be wanting, willing to come to the school? So um, there were all sorts of opportunities for, for that knowledge to grow. And it only increases, right? It's once you once you start building that, people know that you want to know about that, and that you start accumulating all the information about that particular community and what's available outside the walls of the school. So it seems to me that in my experience in schools, a lot of that kind of information is in one person's head. Just as a, a tech solution, where do you put all that? It's <laughs> a great question. Um, you know, it's interesting to think about when I did this, it was much more analog oriented. Um, and we were just starting to use those connectivity tools. And I feel like now there's so much more opportunity for um, connecting globally, right? And, and, and really um, unsiloing ourselves from all of these rurally separated places. Um, but now I would think about things like a shared Padlet or Google Classroom, or I would think about um, creating Google Sites or um, shared drives, places where um, if the person did leave, they could leave that legacy of what are the assets, what are the needs, who are the partners that we can work with. And it changes all the time, who, who comes in, who's willing to work with kids. Um, we did a community launch in Burke where we partnered with 12 different organizations that came into the um, into one of the buildings there, the gym, and set up stations. And then the kids went around and interviewed them, right? So, so that whole structure exists, and all of those partners' contact information exists at Burke Town School, for example. But then they're changing their approach a little bit this year and reaching out in a different way. So you're right. It's how do we hold that institutional knowledge, um, and how do we transfer it every year? I'm going to switch tacks a little bit. One of the areas that I found both in project-based learning and in service learning when I work with schools that's um, a challenge for people is reflection. I wonder what Katie Farber's like uh, in your back pocket uh, reflection strategies are with students as they're doing this important work. 
you know, when I was um, researching service learning, I kept coming across information that was, and research that was supporting how reflection really is the learning and service learning, and that it's so easy as a teacher to just really focus on the doing. Everybody loves the doing. Students, teachers, it's all very exciting. Um, and we have to slow down and we have to think about what we're doing and talk about what we're doing and reflect about what we're doing. Um, it's just critical um, to the success in the learning of in-service learning um, and project-based learning. So um, I tend to be somebody who is excitable and rushes, so I would need to really earmark the time in my teaching schedule for that reflection. And it's easy to get stuck in a pattern of um, just journal about what you did today. And um, that is great that, that there is reflection happening. And um, I think about ways to expand that, you know, with, with great video tools right now, like Flipgrid, um, with sketch noting, with uh, mind mapping, um, with all sorts of other ways to get students thinking about what they're learning. So right now I have a reflection menu that I use and, um, and it lists a, a whole bunch of different ideas, some very tech oriented and some um, just pencil paper um, oriented and just to guide kids. And then, and then I would say, um, I would give them choice about how they're going to go ahead and reflect. And if they stay in one uh, form of reflection, then I would encourage them to try another one, another avenue, um, and really try to create um, a body of reflection at the end of the project that reflects all sorts of modalities so that they know that they're also learning about how to do reflection as well. Yeah. I'm really fond of metaphors. And one metaphor I found works really well with middle school students is to ask them, if the work we did today was a traffic sign, what would it be and why? And I've gotten some really juicy answers out of that and really thoughtful responses. That's really neat. I think some, that's also back to those constraints, right? It's um, so broad to say, you know, what did you learn today? Um, uh, one of the posts that I wrote for the, the um, Tarrant blog has um, tools for reflection and it has a, a giant list of reflection questions that can be used. Um, and that might be a nice way to get a little bit more focused on different aspects that you want to really you know, draw the kid's attention to. You know, maybe you're working on a specific transferable skill. So you say, um, how did I practice communication this week? What was hard? What am I going to try next week? Yes. So it's not only a tool of reflection, but it's also a tool of planning and focusing for the next session. Right. Right. When we do collaborative work, sometimes um, I've been working with teachers around using a collaborative pie. How, what, how big was your slice of the work pie? How big were your peers' slice of the work pie? And could you reflect on why that was and how the work went because of that? Um, Katie, in your book, uh, you outlined some key findings from a case study you did on a specific service learning project. Could you share some of those with us? Absolutely. So um, the quote that I'm just going to share with you that I think really encapsulates a lot of the work that was happening at this particular site is this one from Brene Brown. We move what we are learning from our heads to our hearts through our hands. And the findings at this particular site, which was a middle school, um, and it was a, a sustainability course that the students were involved in, that students were doing throughout the course, and they were engaged completely. So they didn't sit for more than maybe seven or eight minutes during class time. They were building their competency, their, uh, their ability to actually do things um, that, that often surprise themselves. Um, they're constantly problem solving. So if the fence broke to the chicken coop, or there was a leak, um, or there was another, uh, any need, the teacher 
teacher would not solve that problem for them, but would ask how they are going to solve the problem. Students regularly showed caring to each other, but also to the chickens or for the tower garden or for whatever, um, whatever needed care. They really showed that regularly. They had a personal connection and a strong relationship with the teacher. Um, the learning environment had a joyful, fun spirit to it, and I say that it's often undervalued. Um, a lot of our student environments are very stressful, uh, but music was playing, and it was, seemed like an, an accepting, safe place for, um, for learning and for exploration. And students felt pride, and they felt good about contributing to the sustainability of the school and the community, that their contributions mattered and that their, what they were doing had significant impacts, and that there were very few behavioral problems in these classes that I observed. I love that. One of your chapters is called Doing Matters, and it reminded me of when I interviewed students from Leland and Gray after their service learning project, that one of the key things that many of them said was, it was really nice to be doing something and not just sitting in, in, in a classroom. Like for them, that doing really did matter. It does, and it, it, it has the ability to, to change their perception of learning because they only think of learning in this one way, right? They've just been, they've been doing learning, doing school in a certain way, and this can really change their perceptions of what they can do and how they can learn. Right, love it. One of the things that I think teachers especially struggle with when we do project-based learning, but especially service learning, is that rarely does it happen with just one kid working on something. It happens in teams or groups, and that working in collaborative teams is really challenging. There's a lot of learning that students and teachers have to do to do that well. Um, you do a really lovely job of breaking that down in your book, and I'm wondering if you could walk us through that. Yes, I actually remember when I first learned about Tuckman's team development model. Um, it was after school, and I'd been trying service learning and kind of feeling like it was a little unwieldy. And um, I remember being taught through the Kids Consortium training and service learning about the phases of teamwork, or the phases that teams go through as they are trying to do important things. And I remember the relief I felt when I learned that storming is a phase that teams go through and it's okay. And it looks like power and control issues. It looks like difficulty communicating. It looks like trying to figure out how we're going to function as a team. And that adults go through that and students go through that. And somehow that just normalized that for me and, and gave me the relief and understanding that I can help students move through that storming phase. And so, so the, the phases that are, are in the book are when the, when the group is forming, when they're storming, when they're norming, and then when they're performing, right? And certainly this is not um, linear. You know, teams can move back and forth between all these phases. But something about teaching that to students and teachers to learn that it, this is okay, this is a different kind of learning and that it won't fit into a tidy, quiet box. Um, it's going to be a little bit challenging for everybody, but that just means that there's more buy-in and that there's more participation, hopefully. I love this because what you're kind of saying to me is that that in the life cycle of a team, there's going to be trouble, that that's normal. And it reminds me both of being a mother uh, when my son was in early adolescence and would get a little surly. Instead of being annoyed with him, I'd be like, oh, he's completely in the right developmental stage. If he wasn't do that, doing this, it might be something to worry about. Or when I work with middle school students, 
it's to be expected because it's the natural developmental arc. And you're describing the developmental arc of teaming as sometimes there will be troubled waters. There are going to be periods where there's a fight for power or where um, uh, kids are, are butting heads against each other. And that if we help them work through that, they're going to be more productive than if we um, shut that down before it even gets started. What a powerful learning opportunity, too. Um, one of the things that it's, it's interest, good to keep in mind as a teacher is I'm not going to go fix it for you. You know, um, how, can, how can this team be productive? Right. And, and, and join, being that be a, a joined space of problem solving. Right. Um, I heard uh, Courtney Martin say on a, post, on a podcast one time, I've become suspicious of efficiency. And it makes me think that sometimes we're so wrapped up in efficiency that we forget that some of our deepest learning happens in these inefficient, messy ways. And teamwork is one of those places that's not always efficient, that's a little bit messy, and yet we learn so much about ourselves and others and how to work together. It also reminds me of the book Duct Tape Parenting. So I don't know if you have read that one, but I have listened to the author speak before. And um, she talks about waiting when you're hearing your kids maybe argue with each other, waiting, waiting, that they're not actively punching each other, then um, can they solve this themselves? Because then they'll have the skills to do that. And so as a teacher, I would have to count to myself. I would have to... Um, fight that urge to go rescue them from the wrangling. Um, and the wrangling was often right before they had a breakthrough. Right. We rob our students of the opportunity to do that deep learning when we rescue them. Awesome. Any other words about teaming and working in collaborative teams? Well, just that we have to use our best teacher moves. Um, so sometimes that might be that kids have clear roles that are delineated and explained and modeled. Um, that that might be the learning that they need to increase their self-direction and their skills to be able to do this work. That might be what it is. They, you might be uh, um, allowing more freedom as they get more experience with this. So it doesn't mean that we just, oh, go ahead in the group and you're going to storm and you'll figure it out. It might mean that we need to give them more clear parameters if they need that. And, and you'll know from your students how you want to start that work um, and then maybe move to more freedom as they gain the skills to do that. Right. What other, you're a master teacher, Katie, I know. What other teacher moves do you find most useful when you're doing service learning work with students? I think um, it is the best opportunity to engage students just in time with whatever they're working on, meaning like I, I might not care about you know, using commas appropriately or any number of skills that I might not have until I need it for my project that I care passionately about. And so if I can align that just what you need right when you're asking for it and you need it, then I'm in that sweet spot of teaching, right? I can use all my best direct instruction skills, modeling skills, scaffolding, all of those things um, right when the, the student is the most receptive for it. Hmm. Um, I'm going to move on and ask you to unpack an example for us that I know you've been involved in. Uh, last week, I had the great pleasure to present with students and a teacher from Cabot, the Cabot School, at the Roland Conference uh, at U the University of Vermont in Burlington. And we were pre presenting on student agency and engagement. And um, these two students and a teacher from Cabot School were, were presenting about their work with Cabot Leads. And I'd love for you to give us a little summary about Cabot Leads as a service learning project. 
Yeah, so, so Cabot is in this really interesting situation where they have a 7 through 12 building, and then they have the K-6 buildings. Um, they're separate buildings, and they're spread out over this campus. And what was happening was that um, they want to view themselves as a middle school, as a 5-8, as a but, um, but since the buildings are separate, it's really very difficult to build that belonging, that community, that sense of purpose. And so we wanted to come up with something that would would allow all students to engage in leadership and service and to feel critical to the running of the school in a meaningful way. So um, I had done something like this in sixth grade at Romney School um, where students had done jobs and these jobs were either identified by what the student was interested in and what they saw as a need in the school community or it was identified by the school community saying, hey, we have all of these efforts going. It's, it's too much. We, we really need the support of the students here. Um, and so really it's this intersection of what does the school community need and what are the students' interests. And so I had done that on a classroom level and then we took it middle school wide with Cabot Leads. And so um, people from across the Cabot community identified needs um, within the community. Students did an a set of interest inventories, um, discovered what they were passionate about helping with, and then they applied for different jobs. Um, key in helping the school function. So things like culinary assistant, um, public relations committee, library assistant, math tutor, things where they can go in and um, once a week usually, but sometimes more, help with the functioning of the school toward positive outcomes. And that's a 5-8 program. So what are we doing there? Well, we're building all sorts of cross-age relationships. We're building all sorts of um, narratives of opportunity and career pathways, and then just so, so much um, belonging between that group. And then as they gain more skills, they can gain more independence with each new job. So they can reflect on the job they did last year and the job that they want to do in the upcoming year. They have to interview for the jobs, and then the mentors get together and they decide those, those different placements based on what students need and um, what they're interested in and what would support the community. Such uh, real world skills, right? Not only do they have to interview, they have to apply. They have to, to build a resume yep. and um, write a cover letter, am I right? Yes, yes. They do. Um, they go through, a, you know, even just the learning of that procedure. If you think about that, why do we wait until kids are in college to engage in, in that or, or, or post-secondary anything? Why do we wait to have those kind of conversations? Into, you know, why not get to know what are your strengths now? What do you want to learn? What do you want to do? And I just did um, interviews of kids last week for this job, and you could just see. They, they did a virtual interview with me, so not only they're gaining the skills on doing a virtual interview and connecting to what are my strengths, what can I bring to this position, how, how might I impact the community? These are deep questions that kids are asking in middle school at Cabot. I heard from uh, one of the students that there's a new job this year that got me really excited. Do you want to talk about that new job that they were offering this year? Are you talking about the advisor to the principal? Yes. Yes. <laughs> that was so exciting. Um, that is just wonderful. Um, Glenda Cresco, the principal there, um, I, I'm not exactly sure how this job was born. I'd love to trace that back to its origin, um, but I just love that the student can partner with the principal in all the school improvement efforts, and that's just a really exciting development. Has that job been filled? It has been applied for. Excellent. Yes, yes, and there are several new, different new positions this year. Um, there, let's see, there's the... Um, Concession stand 
uh, person who or assistant who helps run that space, and so that's you know to support the community and to raise money for the school, and so there's all sorts of applied math that that can come from that. So that's just really exciting too. Yeah. I love that program. I um, love talking to the students and hearing about their growth. And I love the way they celebrate their learning with a gallery at the end. And actually, I'm really glad you said that because that's the thing I did forget to say is that there is a Cabot Leeds culminating event sharing, which was so neat. I attended last year and um, the students from the, the culinary um, committee and assistants, they were making um, pizza in the outs- the pizza oven outside to feed everybody that was coming to take in all of the, um, the exhibits that were on display. I love it. Um, let's talk a little bit about the books that um, really informed your learning around service learning and that you might suggest um, other educators um, uh, read or revisit as they're doing this important work. Well, it's a really interesting cross-section, right, of place-based learning, service learning, and project-based learning. And so I think it's fine to to dance between um, those and to really get to know, um, you know, how, how do you want to incorporate some of those similarities between those approaches? Um, Kids Consortium has a website um, and several books that I that I really do that I really do like, as does the Buck Institute, um, setting the standard for project-based learning. That's a really incredible guide filled with research and resources on project-based learning. So I feel like those two are really solid grounding in both pedagogies. Um, And I think I would start there, and we can link those out. Excellent. And then here is my own special interest. Um, In thinking about doing this interview, when I was reading your book, I was thinking, where does this show up in uh, young adult, middle grades, uh, or children's literature? And the the example that came to me of kids um, sort of solving a problem, an authentic problem that they had, was uh, Harry Potter. Um, Specifically, I think the Um, Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix, where for the fourth or fifth year in a row, they have a completely crummy Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher. Now it's um, Dolores Umbridge, and she has them learning about the dark arts by doing worksheets, essentially. And so they form Dumbledore's army, and it's their way of solving a problem. They have to be prepared for what's coming, and so they practice together. Um, but I had a hard time really thinking of service learning in action in books, but I'm wondering what what sparks service learning for you? Well, boy, so so I come at the work from an environmental lens, and so a lot of my en- entry into service learning was around environmental issues that I would learn about and then bring forth um, to students. So we had sustainability standards um, and one one year, I would sort of focus very locally one year for a service learning project and then try to be more global the following year. And um, one year I just I spread out a tarp in the classroom and I just took the trash and I just dumped it out in the middle of the classroom. And it smelled, and oh my gosh, lots of drama. Um, but we discovered some really basic things. Like kids were getting bagels for snack time and they were throwing their foil into the trash. There was a ton of foil in there. And so that was a problem we wouldn't have really known if we wouldn't have been, had been reading nonfiction, you know, about environmental issues and problems and really thinking about that. Books like, like Hoot, any Carl Hyacin book, right? Any book that, um, or The Long Walk to Water, you think about that book that is just is coming back to where where different people have to spend hours and hours to find access to their water. So it's just what are what are the anchor, what are the issues that you're seeing in in your literacy program, right? Like what are the 
things that you can that make your kids feel very excited, right? And that feels like it has possibility and local or even global connections. Um, I'm trying to remember the book that we were reading when um, students understood for the first time that girls across the globe did not have access to education. This was a startling realization for them, and we were on a hike up Mount Hunger in a field trip, and they were like, Miss Farber, can we do something about this? Yes, yes, we can. Yes, we can. So we ended up um, crowdsourcing all sorts of books from the parents and then having um, a a large book sale, and we ended up sending the money from that to the Malala Fund. So there was all sorts of promotion of literacy skills and then the raising of funds, and that came from interest, and that came from sort of learning about world events. So how are we teaching kids about world events? Usually through books, usually through current events and literature. So... A great book about um, girls' uneven access to education would be the new um, middle grades read, Amal Unbound, which I just adored, which I think could really connect well with service learning and with the UN Global Goals. Um, Seed Folks by Paul Fleischman is another fantastic read about the power of a community working together, and I can see that really scaffolding um, some service learning with students. Uh, or being a great read aloud for um, ongoing as you're doing a service learning project with students. I mean, any book that that students identify um, with an injustice or, or a wrong, right? So it can be about a, a societal condition. It can be about something in the environment. It can be about um, maybe even a story that hasn't been told. Um, it, it's just that, that how can we tap into into their interests and and really integrate what we're doing across subject areas and allow them to explore a project based on their own interests. You know, this this can come out. You know, it would be like during the read aloud time, maybe even having a chart up where students are recording different thoughts and different ideas for how they can apply that to their local context and projects that they might want to do based on that. You're reminding me that outrage is a powerful motivator in any book that outrages. And for kids, that's really about any book with injustice because they're so um, focused on fairness um, and equity at that age. They're really concerned when they see an injustice. They, they really are. In fact, I do a writing workshop where um, it's called Writing for Change, and um, we'll make our bother list. So what are your bothers? Right? What are the things that bother you? The plastic in the oceans bothers me. Right, Racism and sexism that's playing out in our news cycle bothers me. What are the things that bother you? And then what are we going to do about them? I love that approach. It occurs to me that um, a school librarian can be a great friend in finding picture books or middle grades readers or young adult books that um, connect with an issue that might help with that spark as well. Exactly, because once you have the bother, you have somebody who cares. And then they want to go um, read about and learn about the topic and, what, and then think about what they can do about it, right? Because they can't just jump to action without having the facts. Right. Love this. I feel so motivated. I want to go and uh, work with some kids on service learning right now. 
Uh, Katie, I want to thank you so much for taking time to talk to me. I also want to give a shout out to the beautiful Waterbury Public Library, which hosted us as we had this conversation today. It's a gorgeous place, folks. Um, check out Katie's book, Real and Relevant, a guide for service and project-based learning in your library or um, find it at your local independent bookseller. And um, let us know if you do some service learning work. We'd love to hear about it. Yes, we absolutely would. And I want to thank you for being a champion of books everywhere, for me personally and for students across Vermont. Thanks, Katie. Thanks for having me. This has been an episode of the 21st Century Classroom, podcast of the Tarrant Institute for Innovative Education at the University of Vermont. Thank you to service learning and salamander handling guru Katie Farber for appearing on this episode. You can find her book, Real and Relevant, A Guide for Service and Project-Based Learning, at your local library. If it's not there, ask a librarian for assistance. You can learn more about the Tarrant Institute at blog.tarrantinstitute.org. <laughs>